from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. While the Missouri legislature determines how to spend record revenue for the upcoming budget, they also have to allocate around $2.6 billion in funds from the American Rescue Plan Act. One way Governor Mike Parson proposed spending nearly $470 million of that funding is towards capital improvement projects for Missouri's higher education institutions. On this week's episode of Politically Speaking, Zora Mulligan, Commissioner of Higher Education for the state's Department of Higher Education and Workforce Development, joins the show to talk about some of those plans. Additionally, Mulligan talks about the current current challenges facing higher education in Missouri today. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me in St. Louis is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent. Jason Rosenbaum. And also joining us, she is the education reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. Hi, Kate Grumke. And then our guest today joining us in Jefferson City, sitting across from me, she is the Commissioner of Higher Education for the Missouri Department of Higher Education and Workforce Development. Good morning. It's Zora Mulligan. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get started with questions, we'd love it if you gave a brief biography of yourself, you know, where you're from, what your experiences in state government, and how you got to be commissioner. Sure. Very good. Well, it is wonderful to be here. I am a consistent listener and frequent commenter to Jason, particularly on your music choices. So it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, so who I am and where I'm from, I'm from the Ozarks. I grew up in West Plains, uh, so I'm a zizzer. Uh, I went to college in Springfield, Missouri at Drury uh, College, now university. Had a really wonderful experience on campus, uh, majoring in political science and psychology. Had a chance to meet some great faculty members and form connections, you know, to make friends with people that were different than me, people who had similar backgrounds to me, and to really do a lot of service learning that was influential in terms of just kind of how I thought about what I wanted to be when I grew up. I graduated from Drury and went on to the University of Kansas, where I uh, got a master's degree in education and a Juris Doctorate degree so I could practice law. And then I came to Jefferson City um, to work for the Attorney General's office. I had a really, uh, you know, again, just a great experience. I started like a lot of new attorneys do uh, at the AG's office, at least did at the time, in professional licensure, which was a great opportunity to develop basic litigation skills. And then I moved up to the Environmental Protection Division, uh, where my specialty was largely tires and piles of tires throughout the state. So I got to know a lot about those laws and those cases. And then wow. I- <laughs> now, by the way, Commissioner, uh- our, our, our co-host today, uh, Kate Grumke, had a flat tire on the way to the <laughs> yeah, studio. Yeah, literally this morning. <laughs> All right, Kate, one tire is no problem. Thousands of tires is a real problem. And that will get the Attorney General's office <laughs> noted, interested noted. in you. Uh, but it was a really interesting experience. I mean, I was a, a young lawyer at the time, a young person, and the AG's office would send me out just in a state car to go and talk with someone in the middle of nowhere about their huge pile of tires. 
Uh, and I learned that there's a lot of overlap between people who don't like the government and people who have a lot of tires on their property. So I learned a lot in that uh, job. So I went on, I led the uh, consumer complaint unit at the Attorney General's office for several years. It was another just really solid experience where I got to work with people all over the state to help address some of the significant challenges they were facing. And from there, I ended up um, serving as the general counsel to the Department of Higher Education and the legislative liaison. Went on to work for the Community College Association for several years, where I just fell in love with the mission of those institutions and the people who work, uh, work there and the students they serve. I was the chief of staff of the University of Missouri system uh, during a time of great interest. We could do a whole podcast about that alone. Uh, again, it was a challenging experience, but one where I made a lot of friends and learned a lot about myself as a person and as a leader. Uh, and then in 2016, I became the commissioner of higher education and have been serving in that role ever since. So, you know, along that line, you know, talk about your position. You know, what is your role over sure. the state's public universities and colleges? Sure. So, you know, if I'm talking to like my mom or my mom's neighbor or a member of the general public, I say, you know, have you heard of A plus and Bright Flight? That's what we do. <laughs> you know, from the most basic level, the most citizen facing thing that we do is administer the student financial aid programs, which are a really, really important p piece of affordability for the state of Missouri. You know, it's, it's beyond that, a much more amorphous position. Um, we know when I started, I did quite a bit of research into the history of the department and the coordinating board and kind of why we were established and learned a lot just about our mission and, and what we were created to do. Our core function really is coordination, so coordinating the public colleges and universities. And that means something that uh, is, is hard to describe to the average citizen, but really, really important in my world. So that means when an institution, a public college or university, wants to offer a new academic program or set up shop in a new physical location, um, they come to us and ask for approval to do that. So it's a really essential function of what we do. It, it tends to be where we face the most controversies uh, and also to be the most difficult to explain the importance of uh, to people outside of our universe. But it really you know, was established as to help coordinate the, the tremendous amount of public resources that go into higher education in the state of Missouri and to make sure that we're approaching um, the task of making sure we have an educated uh, citizenry in a coordinated fashion. So that coordination function is a big part of what we do. Um, we're also responsible for submitting the kind of first draft of the higher education budget. So we put together a set of budget recommendations that goes to the governor who considers what to include in his or her recommendations, and then that goes into the legislative process. So coordination is a big part of what we do. Um, we also do a lot of affordability work, and so that's the student financial aid programs. We have a significant role in outreach, so just encouraging people to think about some kind of post-secondary education, help them think about how they might be able to pay for it, what the options look like. Outreach is a really big and important part of what we do. And then in the you know 2010 era or so, we also um, had, through new statutory authorization, the ability to do a lot of really interesting and important work in terms of student success. So there was a you know a long time emphasis on just access, getting as many people enrolled in college as possible, but there wasn't as much focused effort at the state level on success. And so we did a lot of work, um, you know, up until today, uh, to increase graduation rates, improve transfer, uh, making sure that our our outcomes are more equitable than they have been historically. So that's a big piece of what we do too. And then more recently, we took on uh, the workforce function, and so that is you know a lot of working in partnership with local workforce development organizations. We do apprenticeship programs, on-the-job training, uh, and just you know helping people get into the workforce more generally. And I would say last but not least, uh, definitely a very important part of my job is just leading the department itself. 
you know, one of the pillars of our new strategic plan is making the department the best place to work in state government. And so we really focus on recruiting and retaining talent, um, giving them the tools they need to be successful, and having a lot of fun. So it's a, an, an interesting and far-ranging job, and um, it's really, you know, about relationships uh, and trust and advocacy. Now, you mentioned the Coordinating Board of Higher Education. What What is the role of that board over state colleges and universities? Sure. So a lot of the things that I just mentioned are activities that staff undertake and rec- make recommendations about, but the board is ultimately responsible for making the decision. So for example, on academic pr- program approval or new sites or the budget, our staff put together recommendations for the board's consideration, and they can accept, reject, or modify those those rec- um, recommendations. So, you know, it's we have a really, really uh, interested board. They're very highly engaged in making sure that people have as much access to high-quality options as possible, but they, we also approach it in a coordinated way. Uh, I am proud to work for a board that is not a rubber stamp. It's not uncommon through dialogue with the board and in a public meeting for them to arrive at a recommendation that's slightly different than what staff has put in front of them, and I view that as a sign of a really healthy organization. Uh, you know, they do a lot of um, excellent work just to bring their perspectives to their service as board members. Um, you know, they obviously, they um, like the University of Missouri curators, they follow con- congressional districts, but they, they don't technically represent those districts. They are tended, intended to represent the whole state, but they do bring the perspective of, you know, the, the experiences that people in their part of the state are having. They also bring varied professional and civic experience. So, you know, just on the current board, we have a former legislator, we have some business owners, we have a former judge, we've got leaders of community organizations, we've got a lawyer. So it's really valuable to have all those different perspectives kind of apply their logic and their knowledge to the recommendations that staff bring forward. So really big picture, now that we kind of understand more about your role, what are some of the biggest challenges that are currently facing higher education institutions in Missouri from from your point of view? Yeah, so there definitely are a lot of challenges. You know, one is um, enrollment. You know, colleges and universities around the state are facing pretty significant enrollment declines. Um, Our public colleges and universities are down about 15% over the last five years, and that's a big shift. Uh, There are also several individual institutions that have, um, you know, enrollment declines that are more pronounced than that. So enrollment is a huge issue, you know, for a lot of different reasons, one of which is that it's directly related to revenue. And so it really, you know, even in good economic years like the ones we're experiencing currently, uh, downward trends in enrollment put a lot of pressure on budgets and institutions. Uh, Enrollment is also important just because it's kind of the most public-facing barometer of how your school is doing. So one of the things I've really encouraged uh, institutions to do is, you know, when they talk with me about how things are going, I'm interested in hearing about enrollment, but I'm just as interested in hearing about how they're improving student success, how their retention rates are, are increasing, how their graduation rates are increasing. But at the end of the day, you know, when when you're standing in front of your board, the thing they're most interested in hearing about is enrollment. So enrollment is a significant uh, issue that our our institutions are facing pretty much across the board. Well, I was going to ask, how much do you think affordability plays into that? Because I talk to a lot of K through 12 students. I mostly cover K through 12. And I feel like I've been hearing that a lot lately of students telling me that they feel like universities are just too um, too expensive and they don't really want to take that path after high school. Yeah, I do think affordability is a big part of it, but I think that perceptions about aff- affordability are also really important. For low-income students, the Pell Grant is a huge resource and offsets a tremendous amount of the cost of education, especially at a lower-cost institution like a community college or like a, you know, a public university. So the Pell Grant really goes a long way for a lot of people in helping cover those costs. 
Um, A plus is another huge resource, Access Missouri, another big resource. So I'm definitely not downplaying the importance of affordability, but I am saying that students uh, really should take the opportunity to find out what resources are available because often there's more money on the table than students know. Is there like one place you would say if students are listening, it's, is there like a website or something that you would point them to? Sure. So we have a student facing website called Journey to College. So it's journeytocollege.org. Uh, it contains complete information about all of your different educational options, about different resources that are available to help with affordability. And a key you know, differentiator between the information that we put out and what a student might get from an institution is that we're not advocating for any one choice. So you know, it's just in, in favor of post-secondary education generally uh, at you know, the institution that feels like the best fit for the student and uh, helping them figure out a way to be successful and, and afford those options as well. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the ability of these institutions to operate? Is there a recognition that virtual instruction may have been may have a permanent place in college or university experience? Sure. So COVID, you know, across all sectors, COVID had an absolutely enormous impact. Um, and I've got to take my hat off to all the people on our college and university campuses that helped um, mitigate the impacts of COVID-19 because they work just like crazy people, not just for 2020, but 2020, 2021 and beyond. Uh, and so it affected every single aspect of life on campus. Um, all of our public institutions did bring students back to campus for on-campus on instruction in fall of 2020. Um, that was a, a risk that a lot of people were pretty nervous about, but through the application of a lot of mitigation measures, those semesters were really pretty successful. It wasn't exactly like life, life was before COVID, but in general, it was a really significant success. Um, that success was due in large part to the governor's decision early on to invest a lot of money in helping institutions implement mitigation measures. So again, just want to extend thanks to Governor Parson for understanding how important it was to bring people back to campus um, as soon as it was possible to do so safely. In terms of online instruction, I think, um, you know, in a lot of ways, my perception is that COVID-19 has probably set us back in terms of people's interest in online instruction. Uh, a lot of those classes, you know, were offered in a high quality way and students had a chance to learn a lot. But every student, faculty member and staff person I talked to has really um, recognized the loss of personal connection that comes with those online classes. So there will always be, you know, on campus, there will always be students who are taking some fraction of their classes online instead of in person. There are always going to be students for whom it's a lot easier to do online instruction. Um, a lot of things you know, that we used to do in the old days now seem kind of crazy. An example um, is from a friend who works at Ozarks Technical Community College down in Springfield. And she noted that they used to require people to come in for advising appointments, even if that meant finding a babysitter and driving in from Fordland. Uh, and now, you know, they recognize that you can do that appointment just as effectively by Zoom. And so a lot of things are going to change for the positive. But I don't think that uh, COVID-19 is going to be a catalyst for, you know, the much more wide scale adoption of online education. So I'm an adjunct instructor at Washington University in St. Louis, which is a private institution. And one of the things that has been going on there is there's a real concern about the mental health of, of students. There's been several students that have taken their life in the past few weeks and months. And I think that we don't know the reasons individually for this, but from talking with people that work at Washington University, including my wife, who is an engineering librarian there, uh, there is real concern that students being confined in a dorm and not having the ability to interact socially is, is very difficult for, for kids, especially ones from who are far from home. 
How is your department viewing this issue? And is this also a problem at the state's public institutions as well? Yeah, mental health issues are huge. Um, they certainly were before COVID-19 and they're even more so after COVID-19. Uh, we have a, approached it in several different ways. I mean, one, we have a partnership with the Department of Mental Health that allows us to extend some online mental health services to students. But the biggest issue that you hear when you talk with people on campus is that the, the greatest challenge really is in workforce, and that's a long-term challenge. So we have you know, been thinking in the longer term, how do we need to change what we're doing? You know, some examples of things that we've done to help in the longer term issue with the workforce. One, we approved um, a request from Missouri State University to partner with Burrell um, Mental Health Services uh, down in Springfield to expand the number of PsyD uh, professionals who are going to be able to enter the workforce in, in the Ozarks. That's going to make a really, really big difference because access to that you know, high level of mental health care provider is something that is uh, not adequate uh, in Springfield and other parts of the states as well. So thinking about you know, that high level of, of psychologists that we need to be available is, is part of the work. At the other end of the spectrum, we're also thinking about how apprenticeship opportunities can help um, people who provide direct care to individuals with mental health and other significant issues that they need help addressing. So, you know, we're thinking of it in the short term in terms of what resources we can provide, uh, but also in the longer term of what does the workforce need to look like so we can, you know, meet the needs of the future. And tell us about what the state is doing to to attract people and kind of compete with the universities and colleges at states around us. So what does the state do to convince Missourians to go to college here? And what are the challenges of convincing out-of-state students to go to college here? Sure. So that's a great question. Every year when I'm in front of the House Budget Committee in particular, they're always really interested in how we compare to and how we compete with other states. Uh, it's a really good question. You know, we are overall a net importer of students, uh, that which means we bring in more students to study here than we send out. Uh, however, it's still a significant challenge. And so, you know, a lot of the things that our institutions do are more aggressive uh, scholarship packaging just to make sure they're able to, you know, compete with states. Most of our uh, biggest population centers are fairly close to a border. And so a lot of them have pretty generous uh, policies in terms of, you know, what is in-state tuition to make sure that students from those counties that are close enough uh, can, can attend a Missouri institution at a relatively low cost. At the state level, you know, we did some marketing over the summer to talk about all the different benefits of living and working in Missouri, living, working, and studying in Missouri. And, you know, it's just a, a real attempt to show all of the good things about a state that we all really love and love to live in. Um, but sometimes people coming in from outstate might not have as clear a picture. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum, political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio, Kate Grumke, education reporter for St. Louis Public Radio, and our guest today is Zora Mulligan, the Commissioner of Higher Education for the Missouri Department of Higher Education and Workforce Development. Let's get back into it. So I know that the department added workforce development to its responsibilities several years ago. First of all, how would you define workforce development? <laughs> That's such a good question. Um, a lot of people have a vague notion of what the state does in terms of workforce development. What it means practically is, you know, we're a pass-through for federal funds so that our local workforce development boards can get the money they need to put people um, into jobs and also into job training programs. So a lot of what we do is acting, um, you know, as a partner in accountability to make sure that money is being spent effectively. So that's a big part of 
of it, but we also, you know, do a lot of things at the programmatic level. So, for example, we are, um, you know, leaders in apprenticeship programs across the country. Uh, we do a lot of on-the-job training or offer support for a lot of on-the-job training. But more broadly, thinking about how higher education relates to workforce development, you know, really providing funds uh, to help institutions expand programs that lead to work in high-demand occupations has been a, a major focus. Uh, and also just really changing the way we talk about post-secondary education to help people understand the full range of options that are available. You know, a high school diploma by itself isn't uh, generally very helpful for trying to get a job that's going to get you into, you know, benefits or any kind of regular schedule. But often something that's shorter term than a bachelor's degree is a good option for a lot of people. So, you know, whether it's a certificate that's relatively short term, an apprenticeship program, technical training that might really align with something that a student is passionate about or interested in, they're all good choices. Uh, we also, you know, talk a lot about the importance of not just thinking of either or kind of approaches. Uh, often there's, um, you know, a, a tendency in workforce development to think, well, you must be just talking about associate degrees or you must just be talking about community colleges. All of our institutions in the state play a huge and significant role in helping Missouri meet its workforce needs. Uh, and I think that's an important thing for people to understand. Well, you kind of led into one of our next question. What is the role of community colleges in workforce development? And, and what are some non-community colleges, including major public universities, doing to, to further the goal you just talked about? Sure, absolutely. So community colleges you know, play a somewhat unique role in some ways. You know, One of the things they do is they offer a lot of customized, uh, customized training through programs like Missouri One Start. And so they are able to go into an employer and say, you know, I understand that you need help skilling people up um, on a particular piece of equipment or with a particular leadership skill. And so they can help, you know, with those particular kinds of things. They also have a lot of, of training programs at the associate degree level or sometimes the certificate level that are really directly related to something that a, a student might be preparing to do out in the workforce. So, you know, a welding program or an ag program, precision machining, those are all examples where the name of your program is a pretty good predictor of the job that you're going to kind of have when you, when you complete it. So community colleges do have a, a significant and very, very important role in workforce development. But I would argue that our, our universities, both public and private, have an equally important role you know, when you think about um, one of the goals of a student who's earning an associate, or I'm sorry, a bachelor's degree, it's often to find a great job that will help them, you know, live a, a happy and, and stable life. So that's not the only goal of getting a degree, but it's a really important one. When I think about examples, you know, there are millions <laughs> across the state. One great example, I was down at Missouri Southern a couple of weeks ago and had a chance to meet with some faculty members who were using grant money they'd received from the department to expand training in environmental sciences that will help students prepare for a whole variety of jobs, um, from the local health department to the EPA to all kinds of other things that involve water testing, uh, environmental hazard mitigation. You know, those kinds of things are, are really, really important, both for a student's personal development as well as for workforce development and meeting community needs. And I'm curious, how often are those programs kind of defined by the business that the students might be going into? Because here in St. Louis, I know that some of the local community colleges have been working on getting biotech and ag tech programs off the ground and have had some success kind of working with companies. But it was interesting to hear that often they're kind of going to the employers and asking, what do you want us to train the students in? So is that a pretty common kind of give and take or how does that usually work? Yeah, it's an important give and take. You know, it's important to recognize that that faculty are in charge of the curriculum. And so that's an important thing to understand from the beginning. But it's also really important to understand that great 
great faculty and strong institutions get a lot of feedback and input from the stakeholders that they work with. And so, you know, talking in a really honest and candid way about the strengths and weaknesses of people who are coming out of any given program, I think is an essential step to making sure that students have the skills they need to be successful. Uh, it happens at almost every institution around the state, if not every institution. But I would say there are um, varying degrees of candor around those conversations. And, you know, sometimes they tend to be a combination of fundra fundraising, uh, friend raising, and, you know, getting feedback. I think the best examples of those are ones where, you know, people from a business or in industry have a long-term relationship with an academic program. And they're able to talk with the students and talk with faculty members about ways to make the program more relevant um, you know, for students who might be interested in, in pursuing a particular kind of work. I want to move on to the American Rescue Plan Act funding. Uh, Missouri is going to receive a lot of money from this, and, and some of it is going to go towards education projects. Do you know how much money in American Rescue Plan funds are slated to go to capital improvement projects at colleges and universities? Sure. So the governor's budget contains almost $500 million for transformational uh, capital improvement projects at public colleges and universities around the state. Uh, it's very hard to overstate the significance of these investments. You know, they're addressing some of the longest term challenges that I have heard, out, uh, heard about since I started working in higher education in 2007. Uh, they're also going to do some, you know, major things that will make a big difference in individual communities. So just looking, for example, at the projects in St. Louis, um, you know, Harris Stowe is slated to receive funds for a new STEM academic building, which is a very, very big addition to that campus. Uh, there are two big projects that are going to have a big impact on North County. Um, one is UMSL is, is really transforming the way it uses its space and kind of sits in its physical footprint. Uh, they're going to be making some changes that will create first-class space for a whole variety of STEM programs. I um, want to give a big shout out to Brian Williams and others in St. Louis who have been really, really instrumental in coordinating not only you know, the work of the university, but making sure that it connects um, with other efforts in the community. So that's been a really, really stellar example. Uh, another big one, you know, St. Louis Community College is going to be building a health sciences center at uh, its Flow Valley campus, also there in the North County. Uh, and that's another great example of how a partnership with local people has resulted in a really, really amazing outcome. Um, St. Louis Community College is able to do this in large part because voters accepted um, a, a tax a couple of years ago that is that going to allow St. Louis Community College to provide the match that they need to make this uh, program as, as successful and significant as it needs to be. So those are some examples in St. Louis. I mean, there are huge examples throughout the state. I know you have a lot of listeners in Rolla. Uh, there's a big project at ST called the Protoplex. Uh, you might not know much about that word now, but I think you'll definitely hear about it in the future. Um, it's going to expand research and development opportunities for manufacturers throughout the state of Missouri, and especially the smaller and mid-sized manufacturers that don't have access to a lot of R&D uh, in their own sites. So that's a big one. East Central College is going to be expanding community college offerings in Rolla, which is another of those kind of long-standing needs that we've been waiting to have the resources to be able to address in a, a major and significant way. Uh, there's big stuff around the state, and uh, I'm really, really excited to see it all begin to roll out. So it's, I actually have, you know, on my desk or on the table that we're talking to, uh, Governor Mike Parson's initial proposal for ARPA funding. And looking at this list, uh, you know, 26 projects are listed under investing in higher education capital projects. What went into kind of making these requests? Is it more of a situation where the project is already established and the funding is needed or universities seeing this opportunity and coming up with ways to spend it? Sure. So this um, opportunity has been unique in every way. 
you know, often when we go about making decisions about higher education, we start by trying to develop a formula that will allocate resources in some kind of rational way or, you know, coming up, up with a way to approach the overall division of resources. This was different because the institutions were invited by the governor to say, what is your top and most transfer- transformational capital improvement priority without regard to, you know, what the cost would be or how the, the um, you know, money would be allocated among institutions or across sectors, but what's the biggest thing that you want to get done on your campus? Uh, that is unprecedented as far as I know in the history of the state of Missouri, and that's why you have on the list projects of the magnitude and the significance uh, that you see when you look at the governor's recommendations. Do you see any ARPA funds going to anything higher education related besides capital improvement projects? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there will be a lot of of opportunities for higher education to benefit from the ARPA money. You know, one of the biggest things that I think people aren't talking about enough is the amount of resources the state is receiving to improve access to child care and high quality child care. So Governor Parson has already allocated a significant amount of money to um, expand or establish childcare facilities on campuses around the state. We're going to see some more of those kinds of investments, which we know are really, really critical to helping students be successful. Uh, there will also likely be opportunities um, through grant programs at the Department of Economic Development or the Department of Natural Resources. So I do think there will be a lot of, of ways that colleges and universities and the students they serve can benefit from the overall package of ARPA investments. I was speaking recently with one of your counterparts at the Illinois Board of Higher Education, and they have a big um, tutoring initiative that they're launching with ARPA funding. So universities are partnering with school districts, and they're going to be training community members and students to tutor kids in K through 12 to address learning loss. And I'm wondering, are there any projects like that that are in the works in Missouri, or do you think that they could be? Sure. So individual institutions are thinking about ways to address learning loss. And frankly, individual institutions are working with students who have different levels of learning loss. We have a lot of students who completed K-12 education in the state of Missouri with fairly short-term disruptions uh, you know, to their learning in high school. And so those students come to campus with a really different set of needs than students who might not have been learning in the classroom for you know, 12 or 18 months. So we haven't uh, done anything at the state level, in part because our state has taken a very conservative approach to the ARPA funds. Um, they really have focused very, very narrowly on uh, projects that don't require ongoing funding. And so the kinds of initiatives that you're describing, you know, really are kind of entrees to a conversation about longer term funding. And our, our legislators has, have spoken uh, very clearly that their expectation is that we'll be allocating these re- resources for one time needs. In addition to American Rescue Plan Act funding, the state also has a record amount of, of surplus funding in the general revenue. I know the budget is still kind of being made, you know, it's finishing up in the Senate, there'll be conference committee, but you know, what changes have been made maybe that you're aware of regarding general revenue spending in higher ed? Sure. So the, the item that our institutions always watch most closely is core funding. You know, core funding really is the institution's ability to continue to do business, to do new things, to meet, you know, increasing costs on campus. And so they were delighted by the governor's recommendation for a core funding increase that roughly kept place, uh, kept up with inflation. Uh, since then, there has been some more money added to the budget that would help offset some increased retirement system costs. Uh, and that's a really, really important thing because there are lots of costs that our institutions incur that move 
move faster than inflation, and, and retirement is a big one of those. So that's been a big change. You know, there have been a couple of individual projects that have come in and out. Um, the House actually had recommended funding for our department to do a study on performance funding and on the overall organization of the higher education system. That came out in the Senate Appropriations Committee, and so we'll be really interested to see if that ends up being something that comes out of conference or something that uh, doesn't see the light of day, at least for the next couple of years. So there's definitely been a lot of conversation, but the biggest rocks in the budget were definitely established when Governor Parson made his, his recommendations for the budget. We're recording this on the Monday of the third to last week of session. Are there bills that you're keeping a close eye on, um, whether you're for them passing or against them passing regarding higher education? We really focus on the bills that affect our department directly, and so there's lots of legislation out there that would affect colleges and universities that we do pay close attention to, but we tend not to take a position on. The one that we're most interested in is the uh, potential expansion or extension of the Fast Track program. Uh, Fast Track was uh, approved in 2019. Uh, It's a new grant program that allows an adult to go back to a college or university and get either a certificate, an associate degree, or even if they have some college and no degree to complete that bachelor's degree. Uh, There was a sunset put in in the legislation that created the program, uh, and this year Senator Lincoln Huff has filed legislation that would extend that sunset. Uh, It would also include, it would uh, remove some provisions of the bill that have made it somewhat problematic to implement. And then finally, it would allow students who are participating in apprenticeship programs to be reimbursed for some of the costs of that apprenticeship that might not be covered otherwise. So we're watching that very closely. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Commissioner Mulligan, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. You can follow Jason on Twitter at... Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Kate on Twitter at... K. Grumke. And Commissioner Mulligan, where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? (laughs) The best place to find me is on Twitter, which is at ZZ Mulligan. All right. Until next time, so long. 